This is the Daily Signal podcast for Tuesday, August 30th. I'm Doug Blair. Critical race theory has marched its way through many of America's educational institutions. Angry elementary school parents noticed during the pandemic that their kids' teachers were more inclined to teach them that white people were evil than to teach them how to read. Unfortunately, critical race theory isn't just in elementary schools. It's also made its way to higher institutions of learning, including medical schools and military academies. Bill Jacobson, a law professor at Cornell Law School and founder of Legal Insurrection, has been tracking which institutions teach critical race theory and how deep the rot goes in a database over at criticalrace.org. And he says it's not pretty. I talked to Jacobson today on the Daily Signal podcast to discuss that database and what the implications are for the rapid spread of critical race theory. Americans use firearms to defend themselves between 500,000 and 2 million times every year. But God forbid that my mother is ever faced with a scenario where she has to stop a threat to her life. But if she is, I hope politicians protected by professional armed security didn't strip her of the right to use the firearms she can handle most competently. To watch the rest of Heritage Expert Amy Swear's testimony on assault weapons before the House Judiciary Committee, head to the Heritage Foundation YouTube channel. There you'll find talks, events, and documentaries backed with the reputation of the nation's most broadly supported public policy research institute. Start watching now at heritage.org YouTube. And don't forget to subscribe and share. My guest today is Bill Jacobson, a Cornell Law professor and founder of Legal Insurrection. Bill, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back. It's always a pleasure. And we're going to talk about your newest project, which is centered around critical race theory. Uh, you have a database right now that is tracking where critical race theory is being taught around the country in several different institutions, higher learning, elite private schools, all of these sort of like places you wouldn't expect to see critical race theory. What have you found out about how widespread this is as you've compiled the database? Well, it's so widespread that it's harder to find places where it's not being taught either directly or indirectly than it is where it is being taught. So the website is criticalrace.org, and we started with a database of higher education, colleges and universities. We started with a little over 200. That's when we turned the website live, and we've built that out now to over 500. And it's pervasive. Now, it's called different things in different places. Sometimes it's called critical race theory. Sometimes it's called diversity, equity, and inclusion. Sometimes it's called anti-racism. But no matter what it's called, the point is to focus the study of society and the evaluation of society through a racial lens. We then expanded the database because we uh, got a tip uh, that this was also very pervasive in the elite private schools, the you know national private schools that might call private K through 12 that could cost 50 or 60 or 70,000 a year, basically what, what college costs and where the, the wealthiest and most powerful people in the country send their children. And we found that as bad as it was in higher ed, it was even worse in these elite private schools uh, and we cover the top 50 ranked private schools, and, it, and it's almost everywhere. We then went one step further, and we started to look at medical schools, because I've written a lot about medical schools and the problems there. And so we rolled out a database of the top 50 ranked research medical schools, 
And as bad as it is in higher ed and as bad as it is in elite private schools, it's even worse in medical schools. The, the medical, what's happening in the medical school community is truly frightening and it is working its way into actual medical care where you see some states giving preferences based on race and skin color for different sort of therapeutics. And last but not least, the final piece we rolled out, which is a much smaller one because there are fewer of them, were military service academies. And so just about a month or two ago, we rolled out that database of you know the obvious ones, the Air Force Academy, West Point Naval Academy, um, Merchant Marine Academy, Coast Guard Academy. And so we did that. And there's good and bad news there, which is it's not nearly as bad as every place else. Uh, but I would describe it as a beachhead, that these theories and this approach has established a beachhead at the military academy. So at criticalrace.org, we have this ever-expanding, intensifying database. Each of these databases has an interactive map, so you can hover over this the state and you can click on a state and then you can click on a school and every single piece of data there is sourced and it has not just a source link but an archived link in case it disappears. And so that's what we've done. We've created this thing that documents what's going on. I mean, it's it's a really in-depth database and it's so scary to see where this critical race theory has spread to. I think the one that shocked me the most was military schools because you would expect the values of the military are so antithetical to what critical race theory is all about that this wouldn't be here. So, Bill, could you explain maybe how, one, it got there? How did it infiltrate these military places? And then, two, how are we seeing it manifest in these academies? Well, it got there the way it got everywhere else is that it, there's a certain ideology that has spread far and wide and has captured a lot of the culture. And you saw it, uh, it was a controversy, I think it was about a year ago, General Milley, the chairman of the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, gave statements about, you know, white supremacy and white anger and how he's not opposed to the teaching of critical race theory at the military academies. And so the military, you would not think would have that culture, but from the highest level, literally the highest level, there is a push to focus on these sort of things. And this is in many ways a post-George Floyd phenomenon and the, the push, you know, uh, to get this into the military academies. And so when the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is embracing this sort of ideology, it's inevitable that it would trickle down and it would have an impact. And we've seen that impact in the military academies. Uh, there was a professor at the Air Force Academy who actually wrote an op-ed, I forget if it was in the Wall Street Journal or wherever it was, but some major publication about, sure, she's teaching uh, critical race theory in her political science courses at the Air Force Academy. Uh, Judicial Watch obtained documents showing how deeply this had penetrated at West Point and that there were various programs going on, you know, about white privilege and things like that, um, that take place at West Point. And, you know, in our database, we document numerous other instances. Now, in the military academies, most of this is not mandatory. It is... Uh, voluntary, but it's still part of the curriculum. It's still there and it's still part of the culture through the DEI programs, the diversity, equity, inclusion, which is, you know, the euphemism that's given to uh, this hyper racialization of education. And so 
the military academies are a mixed bag. There are clearly professors who are teaching it. The military top brass has embraced it. And there is a fair amount of voluntary programming at these institutions. Again, I do want to emphasize, it's nothing at the level that's taking place elsewhere in higher education, but it is there. It's been reacted to with a fair amount of controversy. Some of the schools had to kind of walk back what they were doing uh, because of public controversy. So, but it's there, and that's why I describe it as a beachhead. It's there, it's being taught, it's being embraced, but it hasn't spread far and wide. Right. Well, one of the things that strikes me as a sort of interesting part about this is that it's voluntary, right? It seems like it's been embraced by top brass, by a lot of these administrators, the DEI folks that are always going to be there. How has the rank and file sort of responded to this? Are we finding that they're willingly going to these classes or they're being pressured into them? How is the rank and file responding? Well, we don't have that sort of data because we wouldn't, that's not something that would be public course enrollments, things like that. But one thing we do see is that when you have a DEI bureaucracy at a school, it almost becomes similar to political commissars, uh, you know, in the Soviet Union, where you have people who are there to enforce an ideological viewpoint, and you don't have a bureaucracy enforcing the opposing viewpoint. So it's a completely one-sided bureaucracy. So voluntary becomes really questionable when you when things pervade a university and we see that particularly in higher ed it becomes part of the culture and dissent over it is really not permitted so it's hard to know how it's been embraced by the rank and file in the military academies that's not something we have access to but the fact that it, i know that we people have reached out to us people who are graduates of these military academies and have said that the alums you know former military officers are very upset. Uh, And I know there have been some groups formed for alums of the military academies who are trying to raise awareness of this and push back against it. And if they are doing that, I have to believe people in the rank and file feel the same way. But of course, when you're in the military, you're not really supposed to dissent from, you know, the commands from above. So uh, I I think it would be very hard pressed to expect someone who's enrolled at West Point, for example, to protest this sort of stuff. That's just not, I think, the culture. So I think they're probably what we see in many places. There are a lot of people who think it's ridiculous, who don't approve of it, who know how pernicious and uh, damaging it is to our society, but who just keep their mouths shut and because it's not worth the risk. And I have to believe that's what's going on at the military academies. Mm -hmm. The other massive one that you mentioned is medical schools, which seems like such an odd place to put a theory that's going to essentially make race the prime determinant in what you do. Um, I mean, you mentioned that one of the ways they're doing this is who gets medicine, who gets treatment based on historical discrimination and prejudice. I mean, what justification can they have for this type of, it just seems so antithetical to medicine as a concept. It's truly frightening what's happening in the medical community. And uh, I am actually a named plaintiff individually in a lawsuit against the state of New York because they had, when COVID therapeutics were in short supply, they issued guidelines, the health department. And these were guidelines arising out of this critical race view of the world. And in the guidelines, people who were non-white, which they did not define, uh, 
got preference for these medications. So if you were non, everybody had to show you had COVID, you had symptoms, you're presenting within five days because the medications only work if you catch it early. But the, the fourth category was that you needed to show a risk factor, a personal risk factor. Merely being non-white was deemed in writing by the Department of Health in New York as a risk factor. But if you were white, which of course they don't define what that means, but if you were white, you would then have to show that you had a personal medical condition, like a diabetes or heart trouble or something else that put you at risk. And so I've sued the state of New York. Um, it's now up on appeal because the issue was whether I had standing to sue because I hadn't caught at that time COVID and I hadn't sought the medication and that'll be decided. But that is a prime example of how this DEI slash CRT ideology in medical schools is having real world impacts. Medical providers, medical health officials are actually acting upon it and implementing it in the way they treat patients. And it is a disaster in the making. It's the exact opposite. If two people walk into an emergency room with COVID and they meet the other qualifications, the question as to who gets the medicine should be, who is sicker, who is more personally at risk, not what the color of your skin is. And that's how that, but when you have an educational system with which really almost through kindergarten now through higher education in most places in the country teaches children and teachers that the most important thing in their life and the way to look at everything is through skin color. What do you expect to happen? And we will see this work out in other professions not just medical school, you know, you see it in law schools, but, you know, we don't have a database on law schools about it because it would be literally every law school, but we do have a database on medical schools and it's a wake up call. It, people need to be aware what is going on. Mm -hmm. uh, something that strikes me as I'm reading through this, because I was, I was browsing through a lot of the colleges that I know. I, I went and looked up my alma mater, the University of Portland in Portland, Oregon, and was shocked. I shocked, I tell you, that it showed up on this list. It didn't really seem like that the administration was trying to cover up what they were doing, though, whereas in when we look at this in elementary schools, it almost seems like they try to hide this behind other language. Is this something that institutions are proud that they're doing, that they want to advertise this, or am I reading too far into this? No, you, you're exactly right. Our database is based on publicly available information. We have researchers who spend all day going to university websites and university websites can be quite complex because you have not just the university website, then you have individual colleges and individual schools and individual departments. Um, and what we do is we simply document what they are saying they are doing because they love to brag about it. This is a bonus in higher ed if you are, you know, uh, providing Ibram Kendi's book uh, to students, if you are inviting him as a speaker, if you have this programming about white privilege, they love to talk about it. And so what we do is we document what they are talking about. It's a bigger problem in K through 12 because they don't love to talk about it. And that's one of the challenges. It's one of the reasons we didn't do a K through 12 database, although we have a ton of information about K through 12 at the website. We didn't do a database. One, there's too many school districts. There's 13,000 public school districts in the country. There's too much to get our, wrap our hands around. But also, they don't tell you. And one of the big pushes that is taking place at the state and local level 
our education transparency laws, that these materials should have to be put online because there's really no way for parents or us creating a database to access what is taking place at K through 12. So you're absolutely right that higher ed, medical schools, uh, even to some extent, lesser extent, um, private elite K through 12 schools love to talk about it, but public K through 12, it's like trying to pry information out of them. The teachers unions and the teachers administrations and public K through 12 do not want people knowing what's going on. Given that it's so open and that they don't seem to be hiding it, are there any coordinated efforts to get critical race theory out of these institutions? I think it's mostly a local level and I've always argued that this is a, a local fight. There are obviously state actions, Florida being getting the most press attention, where state authorities are trying, who have control over public school curriculums, are trying to get this out. And I think it's appropriate in K through 12 for the state authorities to have input. These are state schools. You force students to attend them by the police powers of the state. You can arrest someone for being a truant. You can, in some states, arrest their parents. So because you have the police power of the state, forcing students into state-run schools, I think it's certainly appropriate for the state education authorities and the state legislatures to have a say in what is taught in the schools. It's a little more difficult situation with higher ed because you've got different concepts of academic freedom and things like that. But at the state level, we've seen a lot of action, but also the school board level. I always say to people, you can protest all you want. You can go to the school board meetings all you want and complain. But if the same people remain on that school board, nothing is going to change. And one of the headlines I saw out of Florida last night, I assume it's true. I don't know if it's true, but the headline was that 30 out of the 35 school board election races in where Ron DeSantis made an endorsement, uh, won. So there seems to be a big shift, at least in Florida, among school boards. And that's what has to take place. In these 13,000 districts around the country, parents need to unite locally and get people onto the school boards. That's the, probably the single most important thing because the school boards have the most direct supervision and influence over what takes place in the schools. Absolutely. Well, before we uh, part, I wanted to follow up on what we talked about last time because it seems so relevant to the conversation we're having now. When we last spoke, you discussed the Oberlin College scandal with those bakery owners who were accused of being racist and racial profiling. I noticed as I was browsing through your database that Oberlin was on the list of schools that promotes this type of content. Might those two things be connected? Well, I think it is. I mean, at Oberlin, you had... At perhaps a leading indicator of this hyper-focus on race as being at the heart of all problems. So when a bakery, white bakery owner, stops a black Oberlin College student um, for shoplifting, the immediate college reaction was, this is racial profiling. We need to look at the situation as white versus black, black victim of racial profiling, uh, and not wait for the facts to come in. And the facts were that the student actually was shoplifting, later pleaded guilty to it. And, uh, but the university, the college, I should say, didn't wait for the facts to come in. So what happened in Gibson's Bakery is one of the end results of an 
of a, an education which views everything through a racial lens. And of course, we've seen it many other places where you have riots and protests before the facts come out, such as Ferguson, the shooting of Michael Brown, which gave rise national attention to the Black Lives Matter movement in 2014. And we, we now know that because they looked at it through a racial lens of a white policeman and a, a, a black person shot, uh, it created riots and created a whole movement. But in fact, the narrative was false. Michael Brown was not shot with his hands up saying, don't shoot. He was shot because he punched a policeman in the face and tried to steal his gun. So whether it's Oberlin College and Gibson's Bakery or the birth of the Black Lives Matter movement, this hyper focus on viewing everything through race that's taught throughout education has real world consequences. Hmm. Well, hopefully we can get to a point where your, your database is no longer necessary. We just won't have critical race theory in schools. But until then, that was Bill Jacobson, a Cornell law professor and founder of Legal Insurrection. If you want to check out his database, which I highly recommend you do, you can go to criticalrace.org. Bill, thank you so much for coming. Always appreciate having you on. Thank you. Wow, what an insightful interview. I am so shocked that critical race theory has made it to this point. But anyway, that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. And if you haven't done so already, please be sure to subscribe on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can, leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends and family. It really helps us reach out to those people that we want to get this message to. Thanks again, and we'll be back with you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen, Doug Blair, and Samantha Rank. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. To learn more, please visit DailySignal.com.